This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome to the wheelhouse. You can see the confidence build day by day, and there is an electricity to his personality on the field that's really hard to look away from. Starring Jerry Depoto. And Jerry Depoto to the plate with the 2-2 pitch to Alex. Swing and a miss. He struck him out on the fastball. With Aaron Goldsmith. And now chapter three is, yeah, he's a real ball player. He's an impactful player. He can do a ton for your team. And this is a guy that can really help to solidify a big league lineup. And Gary Hill Jr. He seems along those lines where he wants to be great and does everything possible to go get it. It's time for the wheelhouse. Here's Aaron. Uh, it's been too long. We are back with the wheelhouse podcast. Aaron Goldsmith, Gary Hill, Jerry DePoto, as we are recording this one inside the home radio booth at T-Mobile Park. Jerry, it's wonderful to be with you. We haven't seen you since, uh, let's see, since the All-Star break. So it's good to be in your presence again. How are you? That's it. Since the All-Star break is uh, is maybe on the short end of, of what my wife said when I showed up <laughs> <laughs> after the trade deadline was over. You know, following the, the what I would say is like the, the roughest patch of schedule that, that the baseball operations team will ever face with draft and trade deadline. And, and very excited just to to put the team on the court and watch them play. <laughs> You've had a chance to put your feet up at least for a minute since then. Hey, first of all, before we get into it, right now, guys are taking some work on the field. They have the Gino Lime Green Good Vibes Only tank top. JP's got it. Of course, Gino has it. Uh, is that Julio, the gun show going on over there? I mean, uh, I think Ty France has got like a beanie on with the Good Vibes Only tank. Uh, it is a good vibe around this ball club, man, and that's just the start of it. It is. You know, I, I walked into the dining room this afternoon, and there was a, a group of pitchers were sitting at the table, and and they were all wearing the 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 good vibes only shirt. And I said, this this looks like something out of the the 1987 Seaside Heights, New Jersey. Everybody, you know, sitting around at a club, I, and and uh, you know, the guys are having fun. They're leaning into it, and and it's such a loose, fun group to be around, and and that's that's part of what makes us as as interesting to the outside world as maybe just our Seattle fans. Well, it's been pretty remarkable. If you go back even to spring training when you acquired uh, Suarez and, and also, of course, Jesse Winker, but everybody that you have brought in has seemed to make it even more loose and more comfortable, and one guy just makes the other guy better in that regard. And, and one of the latest, we have to talk about the deadline, Luis Castillo, the pipeline from Cincinnati to Seattle continues. Uh, we, we all have seen him on the mound for the Mariners at this point. We know the kind of talent that he is. Uh, Take us as much as you can behind the curtain. These conversations, how did it all go down? Luis Castillo has been on our radar for years, and we've tried numerous times to to grab him from Cincinnati. Even before that, you know, we were interested in him as a as a minor league player with the Marlins, and he's super interesting. The weapons are extraordinarily good. The run and sink on the fastball, the obvious, the high velocity. His changeup has always been a dynamic pitch that has existed. It's not like he picked that up out of nowhere. He's had that since he was a teenager, really. And, you know, the breaking ball has really evolved for him over time, especially this year. His breaking ball has taken to a new level. And, you know, this year he also introduced a four-seam fastball. So 
as you can tell, we were dialed in on watching his every move. We talked extensively with the Reds at the GM meetings last fall in, in November, and, and we brought up Castillo at that point. It was evident then that they would listen to offers on him. We just didn't quite match up. And then the lockout occurred. The work stoppage lasted into the spring. We were not allowed to, to connect with other teams, so we didn't really have the, the ability to see where it would go from there. Uh, and then as we exited the, the work stoppage, when we made the, the Suarez-Winker deal, we were actually talking about Castillo at that time as well. And, you know, the return would have been quite heavy, <laughs> even heavier than what heavy looks like now uh, when you're getting, you know, Gino and, and, and Wink and Luis Castillo. So uh, we were focused then on the bats, but we kept the door open on Luis and continued to scout him through the season. And, and as you could tell by – First, the day that we pushed it across and, and the price that we were willing to pay to make it happen, you know, he was a high target of ours. And we just believed that this is the kind of guy that can help push us to that next level. Speaking of that, when you add him to the mix of guys you already have, how are you viewing your rotation right now? I like it. <laughs> I like our rotation from opening day to now. Mm -hmm. I, I, last off season, when we signed Robbie Ray, I, I vividly recall at the you know, at the press conference when we introduced Robbie, saying that I thought this was the deepest rotation that we've had, at least since I've been in Seattle. And, you know, and I, and I would say that that has turned out to be fairly accurate. And now we add, you know, Luis Castillo, who we think is, is one of the better pitchers in our league. And, and you add it to, you know, a pair of young budding aces, the, the general consistency and, and, you know, inning churn that Marco and Flex give you and last year's Cy Young Award winner. That's a, you know, that is an exciting six starting pitchers. And typically we're trying to figure out who's going to start on Thursday. And now we've, you know, pinched myself. I hope they all stay healthy because, you know, they've been phenomenal to this point in the year. And, and we feel like it gives us a legitimate shot to go into any postseason series and win that series because of the starting pitching, in addition to what we think is a good and deep bullpen. You know, the Castile, the way you describe the conversations, it's really interesting. And that's always kind of been my impression when it comes to deadline, that it's not very often that you're talking about somebody for the first time and making a trade. Like, these conversations can go back one, two, three trade cycles, and then finally something happens. In general, is that kind of how this works most often? Like, these conversations are ongoing more than anything? Yeah, they really are. And it's, it's, it's almost all trade discussions are, are that way mm -hmm. where it's you're just picking up where you left off and I, I know you guys probably feel this over time it, baseball people when you encounter a baseball person you could have seen them a week ago or you could have seen them four years ago and and when they show up you just pick up right where you left <laughs> off in your last conversation as if you know it, it just happened moments ago and the same thing is true of, of trade talks you're just constantly talking through you know the players that, that interest you, how you might match up. The other team may early on be reluctant. And a lot of it is it depends on where you are in your win cycle. Mm. You know, when we first started talking to the Reds about Luis Castillo uh, as Mariners, it was during the, the 2018 winter when we were just beginning our, our rebuild and they were interested in James Paxton. But they were already uh, on on the high end of the win curve. They were a playoff quality team at that time. You know, they weren't really looking to trade away from their major league club. And at the time, you know, Luis was a young major leaguer who had already established that he was pretty good. And, uh, you know, it didn't make sense for them then. It makes more sense for them now. 
This is the first ever electric guitar anthem rehearsal we've had uh, during the wheelhouse. I like it. It did remind me, Jerry, uh, when uh, the great Colin O'Keefe was uh, running the show here with the podcast, we were recording it for Root, and we were over in maybe your suite, and s right as they pressed record and we started the podcast, which was being recorded for Root Sports on video, Somebody came across in the background and squeegeed the windows. <laughs> <laughs> I do remember that. I do remember that. And cut. <laughs> that was amazing. <laughs> hey, when you were talking about Castillo and his repertoire, one thing that, I mean, if you go to his Savant page and you look at his pitch mix and how it plays this year compared to other years, and, I mean, he's he's been good for a long time, but you mentioned his four-seam fastball. The numbers against his four-seamer this year, Jerry, it's, I mean, it's a huge leap. The swing and miss is greater. Um, the All the opposing numbers against it are minuscule compared to what it was prior. Is there anything you guys have identified as to why exactly that's happening? Well, it's a, I think most of it is that it's, A, it's really hard. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, he's throwing it upper 90s, 100 miles an hour. But the other weapons, you know, his, especially the, the the run and the sink on the two-seamer and the, the backup action and, and fade on his changeup, you have to pay attention to those pitches, and they're all down. So if you're looking down and you're watching action that's moving left and right, you know, be it his slider, his sinker, his changeup, you're looking at horizontal movement on pitches that are below, you know, at the bottom of or below the strike zone. And then all of a sudden, here comes 100 chest high. There, it, there's almost no way, if, if effectively thrown, that you can catch up to that pitch. And, you know, right, that's not something he did very often prior to this year. This year, it's become a big part of his arsenal, and, and, and it really has made a huge difference. And he, he's been very good for quite a long time now, but I think he is taking it to a different level right now and cresting. Is the two-seamer coming back? I mean, we know what it has done to Robbie Ray's season. Uh, George Kirby has started to tinker with it and has uh, had success in a short period of time throwing that pitch. Uh, you mentioned what Castillo has done with that. I mean, for years now it's been, right, it's the slider and the four-seamer, and it's like this is the copy and paste for a lot of guys. But now we're seeing more going back to the two-seamer. Where is the pendulum in all of baseball, not just with those pitchers, but with, uh, you know, league-wide with that pitch? It's it, it's kind of like fashion, you know. Everything comes back around. You know, I promised this to my daughters when they were cleaning out my closet about 15 years ago. I said, honey, don't throw that away. It's going to come back. <laughs> uh, and I was I, I nailed it on the fanny packs. I, I can tell you that. Oh, you are but, pro fanny pack. <laughs> so it is coming back around. And we're seeing it now around the league and, and – I think it's becoming a more prominent thing as you try to combat the home run ball. The home run has become such a big part of offense in the in the league. You know, how can you combat home runs? You can get them hit on the ground more often. And you know, I know during my era as a player, that's that was that's how you pitched. Everything was down, down, down. If you threw a ball above the knee, you made a mistake. And you know, there weren't very many guys that rode the fastball. And the guys that really rode the fastball, and it took baseball a lifetime to catch on to this. The guys that really rode the fastball, they thrived. You know, the Nolan Ryans, they, they would thrive because it was so unique and different than what the rest of the, the, the free world was doing. Now there are so many guys that are riding it that the guys, the, the guys who are finding a way under the radar to thrive are the guys who are sinking it. And, and that's not lost on the pitchers in the league. And, and as a result, or pitching coaches, and, and as a result, it is swinging back around. 
Yeah, we mentioned George Kirby as part of this, too. It's seemingly he has stepped on a major league field, and he's been great since the moment he stepped on the field, which you can take for granted sometimes. It is not as easy as it looks. What have you seen from George Kirby? How impressed have you been with what you've seen from him? This is going to sound crazy to say. I've never been more confident in the promotion of, of a pitcher from the minor leagues to the major leagues in believing that it would not affect the way George went about his business. Mm-hmm. He may succeed or he may fail, you know, because it's hard in the big leagues. It just is. But it wasn't going to be because he changed the way he did things. It's a, he pumped strikes. And it's, a, it's, it's funny. I, I think the very first batter he faced in the big leagues was, was it tells you all you need to know about George. I, I think he went out there and went 3-0. And then just came back and started filling up the strike zone. And, you know, here it is, hit it, mid-90s in the middle of the plate. And he is such a confident strike thrower. He knows what he's good at. George picks things up so quickly. Like you were talking about a two-seamer, he picks things up so quickly and, and, and adapts to what's happening around him. And I would say supremely confident without having an air of cockiness to him at all. He's a businessman going about his job. And, you know, I I think I've shared this with you guys before. Whatever it is that you could be good at, I feel like George is just good at that thing. You know, if if he wants to be the best golfer, the best ping pong player, the best, he's just good at that thing. And uh, and he has that knack, even if it's something he's never done before, like throwing two seamers. (laughs) (laughs) Where are his secondaries right now in terms of how you have seen them develop at the major league level? Where do you think might be on the horizon for him as his next best pitch? Kind of what's the whole pitch mix looking like in, in through your eyes? As he was coming through the minor leagues, when we drafted George, he was primarily a fastball slider. And, and that was, it, in college, he did not use changeup much, if at all. He had a curveball, but it was definitely the second of his two breaking balls, and he didn't throw it with a ton of frequency. And, and I think I've shared this with you guys before. And, and he threw a ton of strikes. You know, as a, a, that, that, that was the, the rundown on George. He got into our system, and, you know, we've worked together with George in developing his repertoire. And I, he, he is very in tune with pitch shaping. You know, it's, a, it's something that he takes very seriously. I, I would think along with Logan Gilbert, I don't know that we have two pitchers that have been any more engaged or interactive with our pitching coaches and what their pitches do. And, you know, we, we scale all of our pitches to 100, you know, very much like a WRC plus or an ERA plus. 100 is a league average action on a pitch. And, and as a general rule, you know, we're looking at action scores first at the very earliest stages of a pitcher's career. You know, later on, we, we also will scale to 100 the, the pitch quality, which is the action plus the, the, the location. So George always excelled in location, you know, and his action scores were good. As he went through the minor leagues, his action scores started to go off the charts high. Once he was introduced to pitch shaping, he's he's just has a knack for getting better at things. We saw pitches that were 20% better than average. In some cases, jumped to 50 and 60% better than average. And I don't want to say I, I laughed at because it's unfortunate. Everybody has an opinion, but you know the the, the third party prospect 
grading systems who always have been very kind to George. They, they, they like George. He's always ranked very prominently, but they described his stuff as, you know, he's more of a mid rotation guy that doesn't have dynamic secondaries. And that's not at all what we saw happening under the hood. He has a well above average slider at the major league level. I think you're seeing that play. He does have an exceptional changeup that he still doesn't use a ton. It's uh, because he, he just lets the fastball rip. But when he needs it, it's in there. Uh, and the curveball has become, you know, I would say more of a, a, a get into account or get out of account than a finish account, you know, if that makes sense. It's a contact oriented pitch for him, but he uses it. And now he's introduced or implementing a two seamer, which is, you know, it's a real weapon for him. I don't suspect the knuckleball is coming down the road, but I, George's ability to create, create and shape pitches is just, it's, it's an uncanny thing. Can you explain a little bit the process of, first of all, what you mean specifically by pitch shaping, and then also how do you get from the start of that road to the end of the road? So when our when our pitchers come in, we'll, our pitching coaches, our analysts, our pitching des designers, you know, we have a, roughly a pitching design team, and it's a combination of analysts, pitching coaches, and our pitching strategists. It's Trent Blank. It's it's our minor league pitching coaches. It's Max Weiner, uh, our our minor league pitching coordinator. We'll all collaborate, and we will look at the 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 pitcher's first bullpen. We will take all the data that we acquired when that pitcher was either with another club or coming through the amateur ranks, you know. And then we'll just look at the raw detail. How do these pitches act? What do they do? And then the the pitch designers will sit down and roughly just start turning the dials. This this is how we could turn this from a fringe pitch to an average pitch. This is what we could do to turn this from an average pitch to a plus pitch. And then you sit down with the pitcher and, and walk them through what the, the idea is here. And for a lot of guys, especially early on when we started, you know, introducing this, this process six years ago, uh, when we started to, to introduce this process for a lot of guys, it was confusing. But now when, when third parties, you know, driveline and Cressy and there, there are so many different you know third party or independent spaces around the, the country that teach these same things it's really become more common now you can go talk to a 12 or a 16 year old now and, and they have a feel for pitch shaping so it's really just the angle where your hand is where your arm slot is and the angle of the ball coming out what can we do to create more spin here what can we do to create more of a horizontal or vertical break depending on what it is you're you're trying to achieve and there's a lot that goes into that the most notable is the way your body moves somebody's delivery may not be conducive to adapting to this this change in pitch shape george's body does you know it, it, it adapts very well one of the things we do when we go into each draft or when we talk about acquiring a pitcher via trade, you know, that's not already an accomplished major leaguer like a Luis Castillo. The first thing we do is, is an assessment. We're going to do a movement assessment. And what, what do his patterns tell us about what we're going to be able to do to help that pitcher? And when we find a guy who we think is top of the scale in, in body movement pattern who has good stuff, now we feel like we can – we can really elevate that player. That was maybe the most prominent of those guys have been Matt Brash. We didn't know a lot about Matt as a pitcher other than we loved the way he moved and he already had good stuff. And you know, and he came to our system and he really interacted very well with that pitching group and we took good stuff and and collectively I think made it great stuff. And I imagine it is so much easier to get buy-in on these concepts when guys look around and see from young players like Kirby, Gilbert, 
to guys that come over like Paul Seewald, for example. I, I bet as you are building this system, it just feeds on itself when you have success stories like that. So, you know, we have our pitching, again, they, they've, our pitching guys have done such a great job in this space. And, and Paul's a great example of that. The, the, this past off season, we had multiple uh, free agents reach out to us. And, and uh, one free agent who we met with uh, said, I would love to come there. Just do whatever you did with Paul Seawalt. And I, and I would love to be that guy. And each player, again, it's, it's, it's the way the body moves, but it's also a, a buy-in. It's a buy-in in believing that, that all of this actually works. And, you know, and to Paul's credit, Paul didn't know. He had an idea when he came over here uh, how we would go about it and what we did because he had seen some previous under-the-radar good work, so to speak, on the, the part of our pitching group. And, you know, he became a little bit of a poster child for, for what we've, you know, what we've been able to do in that pitching space. And I, and I think now that he is thriving at the major league level, it really does resonate with a lot of the guys who, around the league who, who saw him when he was with the Mets, when he was an entirely different looking pitcher. And, and uh, you know, Paul always had good stuff. You know, now he has what I think is better than good stuff and his locations and deception are exceptional. Uh, and that wasn't always the case. You know, anybody who hears Jerry break all that down, the pitch shaping and all the all the work, the the different people and the technology mm -hmm. that go along with it, just hit the ball the other way. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I mean, like, when you hear that, and this is obviously the dumbed-down version of it and the abbreviated version of it, but I'm, I'm glad for a lot of reasons you, you kind of led us behind that curtain because, as Paul Seawald told us earlier this year, he said, you know, if my slider feels a little bit off, the next day I can go in the bullpen with the Rapsodo or whatever it might be, and, and I can find a way to fine-tune the shape of it, right? That's a fine-tuned measurement as opposed to maybe a, a bigger version of what you were referring to. But when, when we say it's never been harder to hit right yeah. now in Major League Baseball, I think people automatically think, well, yeah, it's because everybody's pumping it in there at 94 to 97 miles an hour. But it's, it's more than just the velocity. I mean, it... You have a custom shop in all 30 ballparks where guys, not, they might not all be success, but they all can put in the work and have the masterminds behind it because every club's got the same thing the Mariners do, right? They're all... Most. Okay. Yeah. A vast majority, yeah. fair to say, right? And and as you were saying, it's it's on the open market too. I mean, you could come to driveline in December if you're a, a pitcher for any other team in baseball and come and work privately with somebody. I mean, it... It doesn't. The hitters don't have this type. Correct me if I'm wrong. I know there are things for hitters, but is it fair to say that they don't have nearly the advantages that the pitchers do right now? Oh, I, th I think they. I, it's hard to say that they have the advantages in quite the same way that okay. the pitchers do, but they do. You know, and, and another poster child for that would be Mitch Haniger. Mm -hmm. You know, the we bought hard into the notion of swing plane of just keeping a getting a swing on plane as quickly as you can in a process in ways that might have 20 40 60 years ago looked really unconventional mm -hmm. and buying into the self-correction that occurs it's a very similar like the body movement pattern you know that w you will start as the pitcher starts moving down the hill or as the hitter starts loading his swing his body will self-correct if you just focus on getting that bat on plane as quick as you can with the pitch. And, you know, we saw it, you know, Justin Turner and Mitch Haniger and J.D. Martinez, guys who were, you know, nice prospects or fine players who became superstars by, by investing in this type of, 
you know, swing change. You know, Chris Taylor is another of them that, that bought in hard on it. Muncie? And, yeah, Max Muncie, another. There's there and, and now in the league, they're very common. They're not quite as as you know, readily available as the, the, the stuffy pitchers who <laughs> somehow managed to improve their breaking balls. But the player is willing to buy in. You know, again, I'll use Matt Brash as an example. Matt, you know, when Matt was, was in the big leagues early on as a starter, and, you know, he had moments of brilliance, he had moments of struggle. And if you remember, his, his breaking ball, his slider was ah, 84, 86 miles an hour, and it had a nasty break. And when we sent him back to the minor leagues and we started started to, to make some adjustments you know Matt a lone Leitchman one of our pitching coaches and and you know Max Weiner in addition to you know Pete Woodworth and Trent Blank our pitching coaches here and in conjunction with our analysts uh, particularly Joel Furman who who's prominent in our pitching development you know that group collectively got together and say you know what you need to do throw your slider harder and Matt said, okay, and went out and started throwing his slider 88 to 91 miles an hour. And and now that slider that was wicked and had so much visual, you know, the aesthetic to the break was crazy. Now he's throwing it harder, and it's even more impactful. And and the advantage is that now he throws it for a strike with much more consistency than the, than the slower, bigger breaking one. And he still has that curveball that he can throw and break it. And he still has the in-between velocity slider that he can throw to sweep. And, you know, he has so many different ways to shape and move a pitch that, you know, it's it's just – and he's willing to, to collaborate with these coaches on every bit of what can I do to get better. Well, but you didn't know we were going down this wormhole. <laughs> I love it. Well, one of the guys that we wanted to talk to you this about. right. I mean, yeah. it, it leads us right to the water, and that's Andres Munoz. I mean, Munoz, he, he's had – plus stuff since day one within the org but now since he has started throwing his slider harder he has become even more of a monster and it seems like it has made his fastball better uh, walk us through this in-season transformation for Munoz because in the last you know call it two months or so he's been untouchable now, I, I, Mooney really Mooney gave up a grand slam in in Boston and from that moment forward, I think he's been the best reliever in baseball. It's a, you know, from run suppression to strikeout walk rate. I think he's 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 walking about one per nine, <laughs> which is amazing when you're throwing 100 miles an hour with that breaking ball and you're striking out. You know, the 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 strikeout numbers you knew would be big for for Mooney to begin with. But uh, first of all, great guy, and very quickly, you know, came over here and bought into the idea that that our people could help him. And um, and that not just by talking to others around the league, but by believing that that what he had seen with others, you know, watching them improve. Uh, Mooney's a pretty sharp guy. You know, he, he did pay attention to what was happening uh, when he when we got him. We knew he threw 100. You know, we knew he could hit upwards of 102, 103. Uh, what he didn't do is make very big use of his breaking ball. And there was a big separation velocity wise between his fastball and his breaking ball. And oftentimes when when you have the kind of separation, like, for instance, he would throw his fastball 100, he would throw his slider like 81 miles an hour. And, you know, there's oftentimes what you're doing when you do that is you're you're changing the release of between the fastball and the slider. And now the slider just becomes more visible. So it's going to have a longer, slower, more trackable break. And, and in essence, it's just a less functional pitch. So Mooney was so much more about, and he had a fine slider, mm -hmm. it just, but it didn't play with, with his, 
It didn't create a stuff package that created deception and, and high impact. He had a high impact fastball that existed on its own, and then he had this, you know, this wrinkle that he would occasionally throw. And, you know, the, the guys got with him in spring training. We talked about throwing his breaking ball harder, and, and, and the small wrinkle just became a devastating slider. And, you know, and, and you'd almost say it's like that bullet spin. It's, it's that, you know, the, the, it's not one of those wide breaking sliders. It's not Matt Brash's visual, you know, break where you, your eyes pop out of your head. But it's 92 miles an hour with, this, with, with a small, sharp, late dip, and it looks like a strike until it's not. And, you know, and it looks like you're, it's on your barrel until it's not. And the amount of whiff that he gets on that slider is extreme. And it happened in spring training when he started learning how to throw the pitch harder. And he came into spring training with a slider that was now, you know, 85, 87, you know, once we made that adjustment. And then as the season started to progress, you know, we talked to him about mixing up fastball, fastball slider and relying more on the slider, you know, throwing that slider more. And, and in the early months of the season, he was a very good performer who was throwing more sliders than fastballs. And he throws 100, you know, and, and – uh, but what he did in that time was he really gained confidence in and feel for his slider. And then, you know, I know Trent especially talked to him about, now let's try throwing it harder. You know, and he threw it harder. And now the fastball and, and slider started to, to, to morph into, for, for the first, let's call it, you know, 40 feet of flight, you're looking at the same pitch. And it's, and it's very hard to differentiate in the split second that you have to make a decision as a hitter do I swing? Do I take this pitch? Do I, and, and we're watching the best hitters in the league swing over the top of it over and over or just be off timing-wise because it looks like it's on your barrel and then it's gone. And that would not be the same effect if this pitch was 84 miles an hour. You know, the, the fact that he was able to bring it closer to his fastball really created that type of, of magic. And, and in the time since, he has become a much better and more confident strike thrower with both of his pitches. Now he's, he's feeling it with his fastball because the slider is such a weapon for him that now hitters are going up there. And you know this guy throws 100, 102, you know, and you go up there looking for his slider. And, and as a result, you know, it's a, his fastball is not a real action-y pitch. It's just really hard. And he goes out there and he can blow people up with his velocity because they have to respect that slider. And it's, uh, it's really just turned him into a different animal. And I, it's, uh, it's, it's so awesome to see. He's 23 years old. You know, for, for most of the first half of the season, he was the youngest relief pitcher in the American League. And, and uh, you know, to be able to do what he's doing at that age with that kind of impact stuff and really it, uh, there's a lot of career ahead of Andres Munoz, and, and we're really excited to see where it takes us. To illustrate your point perfectly, probably my favorite plate appearance of the season so far was just the other day when Otani comes to the plate. He's the go-ahead run, the MVP. He's got a ton of power. Slider, slider, slider. Swing and miss, swing and miss, swing and miss. The last one at 90 in the dirt. I mean, it was it perfectly illustrated everything you're talking about. I guess one of the best in the game. It's true, and, and it's funny. He can throw it. He can backdoor it now. He's got yeah. the feel to put it on his arm side. He knows when and how to bounce the pitch. It's a he. He has a feel for throwing it for a strike and. 
And and I would bet that anyone who watched Andres from the time he signed out of Mexico and went through the Padres system to his initial arrival in the big leagues to even coming into spring training this year to, to envision him having the absolute command over his pitches that we've watched develop over these last two, three months is that have been lying to you. It'd have been a pure guess, including us. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just it's evolved in such a way that it's gone he's reached levels in terms of his refinement that we couldn't have possibly imagined this early in his career. It it always strikes us as such a difficult thing for a young player to make such an extreme in-season adjustment like you've described with Munoz. Someone else for this team that was just doing his best to keep his head above water the first month and change was Cal Raleigh. Obviously got optioned down, right, was not hitting well. Tom Murphy gets injured, as we find out later, out for the year. Cal has to be brought up sooner than I'm sure the organization preferred at the time, but he was the best option. And then within whatever it might have been, a couple of weeks of his return, maybe three weeks of his return, something changed. The at-bats became significantly more competitive, and now he's one of the top home run hitters for the Mariners, and there doesn't seem to be anybody, hardly anyone else on the team that can lift the ball with as much ease as Cal does, how has he been able to do this? It's it's really helped transform the lineup in a lot of ways. You know, it's funny, similar to, you know, Mooney's break point, which was, you know, giving up that homer in mm-hmm. Boston. And then from then on, he's he's been an entirely different performer. You know, that moment for Cal was he hit a he hit a late game homer at City Field against the Mets and a, t- a t- and, Yeah, I mean it was Shea Bridge, man. Yeah, that I felt like he a, hit it to Connecticut. Yeah, that was but, a bomb. That's a, you know, Cal, he has always had what you're watching right now. That's his skill set. This is what Cal's done from the day he entered our system. You know, he'll take a walk. You know, he's not likely to be a guy that's spraying line drives from pole to pole, but he's got better feel to hit than you think. But his ability to lift the ball and hit it far is huge. And he went to the minor leagues for that brief period of time. And, and I don't know this for sure, but I think that there is a moment for players and some experience it, some, by their good fortune, don't have to. But when you first get optioned from the big leagues and, and you know, you're struggling and you know you're struggling and you're staring at numbers on the scoreboard that don't look like anything you've ever put up in your career before and you go to the minor leagues and then you come back, you just you learn how to breathe, how to take a breath and say, all right, it can't get worse than the last time, right? <laughs> and, you know, Cal came back, and, and it, he was only gone for, what, a week, 10 days it right. might have been? Not even. And uh, and he came back, and you could tell as soon as he walked back in the clubhouse that it was just a different version of Cal. It was the same guy that that uh, that we had seen in in Modesto. It's the same guy that we had seen in Arkansas. He's, he just came back with a lighter feel to him. And you know, almost immediately – you saw his interactions change with the the pitcher, the way he was calling the game. The it's a he played you know a half a season in the big leagues last year, but never truly seemed to, to become part of what was happening. He was trying to grow, and and as soon as he came back from that that brief demotion to Tacoma, he has not just been a part of what's happening. He's been a major driver in what's happening, and not just with power. His on base has really taken a jump in the right direction. And what he's doing behind the, the plate is you know, a, a quick, funny story. You know, I, I was sitting in Scott's office, and we had just brought Matt Brash and Matt Festa that, back from AAA. And they walked into the office, and, and uh, they walked in together. And 
And, uh, you know, Scott looks up and welcomes him back. And, you know, you give him a little fist bump. And you know, they, they've both been pitching extraordinarily well. And, and, and Fess, to his credit, he, he is probably as unfortunate as anyone that he had to spend time in AAA at all because he's been awesome in the big leagues throughout. And, you know, he got caught up in a numbers game as, as one of the players with options. But, you know, Scott fist bumped him, and, and he, he looked at them in a way that, that only Scott can. You know, he gives them, like, the intense look, and he said, he said, do yourself a favor. Go introduce yourself to our new catcher. And I, and I think Fess looked at him. He said, Cal's still our catcher, right? <laughs> and, and Scott goes, yeah, but he's a different guy. That's, you know, very quickly after he came back from Tacoma, Scott said, this is a different guy. This is what we've been waiting for, and, and, uh, and we're all really excited for it. It's really interesting when you kind of peel back the layers of his season so far because his, like, barrel rate and hard hit rate, it's, like, top 25-ish. And he's around Julio when it comes to that stuff, which is where you want to hang out. What impresses me the most, when you look at his whiff rate, different than the strikeout rate, just swings and misses on balls, it has gone down every single month of the season. What has allowed him, you know, we talk about his power so much, but what has allowed him to cut down on the whiff rate so consistently through the course of the season. So, again, something that he'd always done, and Cal's going to strike out. You know, you're right. going to get some strikeouts when you're trading out for that kind of power. But when Cal first came to the big leagues, he was with, he was striking out 40-plus percent yeah. of the time. And, and that's extreme. You know, that's not who he is. And, you know, but he's always been one of the best in our group at making adjustments once he get in, gets into two-strike mm -hmm. counts. And, you know, you can see him adjust. Even now, you know, it's a, he will, he'll shorten up on the bat. He'll shorten up with his, with his stride. He'll spread out in the box. And, and, and it's going to be something different every time. And he's just looking to make level contact. And, you know, it's, it's funny. He's still so strong that, mm -hmm. that he can hit those balls out of the ballpark too, you know, just with that mentality. But it's the first time I really saw Cal start doing the things that you watched him do, you know, back in A ball and double A. It's uh, it really is an evolution for these players as they, you know, get to the big leagues and and learn to trust themselves and, and what got them here instead of looking at it and saying, wow, I can't hit that or wow, they, you know, how am I going to get this guy out? You know, you just got to wade into the water and, and sooner or later, the guys who know how to swim, they'll just start swimming. Jerry, before we wrap it up today, uh, two things. One, you acquired at the deadline a couple of local guys, which, you know, if this season turns out like we all hope it does, and the Mariners reach the playoff and the drought comes to a close, and if Jake Lamb and or Matt Boyd have even a small part in it, I can't imagine what that will feel like for them and their families and their friends. Uh, tell us what it was like for you when you talked to those two local guys for the first time. I spoke first to, to Jake. No, I spoke first to Matt. And uh, one of my favorite calls I've ever made, because I, I've met Matt on a couple occasions before. He's just a wonderful person. And he's, he's easy to be around. He grew up a Mariners fan and in the Seattle area. Family still come to Mariner games. And, and it's a special moment when you, when you get traded to your childhood team. I actually experienced that in my life. And and uh, when I was on the phone with Matt, he said, I can't believe it. He said, I'm just, the feeling I have right now is just joy. I can't explain it. I said, oh, I know exactly what you're talking about. And, uh, and uh, you know, and I told him that, that, that I, too, I, I got traded to the Mets, who I grew up rooting for. And it was a, you know, dream come true. And my family was overjoyed. And, uh, you know, and, and, and I'd just gotten off the phone with Matt, who was clearly over the moon. And he said, I will do whatever I can do to help this team get to where it wants to go. And uh, this is, he said, I've been waiting for this all my career. And, 
And uh, and then I hung up and I called Jake Lamb and and I said, hey, I just got off the phone with Matt Boyd and I'm guessing that my call with you might be similar. <laughs> and uh, he said, yeah, I just just texting with Boyd and he told me, uh, he said, this is great. He said, I've I've always dreamed of this. This is uh, you know, this is like coming full circle. And and uh, I've always wanted to be a Mariner and this is to to with the chance to be here and and, and go to the postseason for the first time since we were kids. This is you know, this is a dream come true. So then. I get off the phone with Jake Lamb, and I called Kurt Casale, who we, we acquired in the same deal as Matt Boyd. And I called Kurt, and I said, this is going to be far less, you know, uh, uh, overwhelming than the first two calls I made today, which was, you know, bringing local area Seattle kids back back home with a chance to go to the postseason. I know you probably haven't spent much time in Seattle, but it's a great time to be a Mariner. And he said, oh, no, my grandparents live in Seattle. I'm th there's, I've spent a ton of time here and uh, there. And he said, I've never been any more excited. I'm pumped. And he said, my family's Jack, this is a great opportunity. And and uh, I thought, what are the odds of that? <laughs> I, you know, we knew the first two. We didn't really have an idea of the third. And but that, you know, that kind of passion, the enthusiasm they have for the Mariners, that you know, the fact that somewhere deep in their closet they might still have some Mariners gear. And and it really is it's a thrill as a player. But when you think about having guys that care that much every day and you know, we have such a young team, many of whom came through our minor league system and they have that passion. We have a lot of guys who came here as as a second chance in their career uh, or the place that they came that gave them their first genuine opportunity. And and that combination, like that trio of, of effects really goes a long way toward building, you know, momentum in, in a clubhouse as we get toward these last 55 ish games. Those are great stories. Terrific stories. All right, we're going to wrap it up with a, a very unique version of Stump JD. Uh, this was a, a topic of conversation just the other day between Gary and myself. Jerry, there is a popular American snack that has a nickname. It's commonly referred to as something, but it is also referred to with the term gorp. Can you tell us what this snack is that is often called gorp? By some sector of the population. Wow, he's got no idea. Yes. I have no idea. This is you're with me. This isn't baseball. Yeah. No, it's not baseball. But it was so. It was, it was so. <sighs> this is so satisfying. Thank you. Yeah. Because, Thank you, Jerry. Thank you. Because everyone that we talked to knew this, but Gary and Jerry. Wow. Yeah. I, this is all news. Okay. To me. Everyone is a stretch. Uh, more people than not. He has two guys on, yeah. the, <laughs> yes, on the subway <laughs> in New York. That's right. <laughs> Trail mix. Jerry. Is called Gorp. Yeah, I had no idea. See, I, I had didn't some either. trail mix earlier today. I enjoy trail mix. I know you're a trail mix guy, guy so that's, that's why right. I brought. I thought for sure Jerry will know. Yeah, I. Uh, if it makes you, ah, this won't make you feel better, but it will validate that this is true, and I didn't make this up. Yeah, we brought it up because as as Gary's holding up here, he he has a <laughs> Gary, Gary's Gary's been to Costco. <laughs> yeah, to, he has a uh, ten pound clear container full of Gorp, as it turns <laughs> out. Uh, there's an article written on REI.com. Like, this is legit. If, REI, is if, legit, Re yes. if REI is writing about trail mix, <laughs> uh, apparently many, many a decade ago, someone possibly referred to it as GORP because of the acronym good old raisins and peanuts. G-O-R-P. Wow. Yeah, and it stuck. Uh, and it's been... Took off like wildfire. Uh, everybody, everyone in the GORP community refers to it that way. But Everybody but Gary and I. Yeah. And, yeah. 
And now I have satisfied my own wonder for what you do <laughs> in your downtime. Well, no, I would actually. Uh, I would this say, wasn't sorry even, I. This wasn't downtime either. This was, this was in the middle of a major league baseball game. <laughs> yeah. Oh, if only to be a fly on that. I wall. mean, uh, it was on the air. It was uh, public public consumption for anyone on the Mariners radio network. Um, yeah, you know, sometimes Jerry, you wonder. You've been in a bullpen before. You spent. A lot of time oh, in the yeah. bullpen. These, actually, you know, Adam Bernero, this is, uh, who is one of our mental skills coaches, spends a lot of time with our major league club in addition to surfing around the minor league system. You know, Byrne pitched in the big leagues for the Tigers, the Rockies uh, for a bit. And um, we were leaning on the, the turtle during this, the, the, the homestand prior to this. And he came up and he stood next to me and he said, he said, I'm told that I got to get you to start telling stories, that you're a, that you're, your storyteller, and I said I do enjoy telling a good story. And and he said, uh, he said, what? Give me a good story. <laughs> and I said, I said I'm going to give you a good story about good stories. Uh, so this is, I said, as a as a player, I, I played in the very first Arizona Fall League in the the fall of 1992. When the Fall League was a 76-game schedule. What? Oh, yeah. <laughs> 70, so we just finished Are you 140. Serious? Oh, yeah. We just finished 140 games in the minor leagues, went into a 70-plus game oh. schedule in the, in the Fall League. And, you know, it was a more advanced group of players at that time in terms of their minor league experiences. So it was almost all AAA players, guys who had, you know, appeared in the big leagues or touched it. And it was star-studded league. It was Mike Piazza and Tim Salmon and Troy Percival, a lot of guys who went on to long, you know, illustrious careers. Ryan Klesko and they, they're, um, so we're sitting down in the bullpen. One of my teammates was was a, a, a young pitcher from the Toronto. He was the youngest guy on our team. His name was Marcus Moore, and Marcus was incredibly talented. Pitched in the big leagues, you know, for for a short period of time thereafter electric athlete, big arm, you know, throwing mid-upper 90s when nobody really threw that hard. And and uh, and he's sitting in the bullpen, and we quickly identified that, uh, first of all, in a bullpen, you have to be adept at sharing a story. It's just the thing. You have to – you're sitting down there now with seven of your brethren. You have to be, you know – what happened last night? Where'd you go to dinner? What anything is a story, and you know, and and a story would drift into another story and another. And and Marcus, we very quickly identified, was a horrific storyteller. <laughs> so <laughs> so we we spent the entirety of that fall every day for the first three innings of the game. You know, Marcus would pull up a bucket, you know, like the Rawlings ball bucket, and we called it Story Time with Marcus. And and Marcus would pull up a bucket and sit there, and we would we would take turns walking him through how to tell a story and it like, was like the game is going on oh like, yeah and uh, yep and, and nobody's watching we're trying to teach <laughs> marcus how to tell a story and and I, I look back on that it was it was uh, hilarious and uh, you know some some really long tenured major leaguers are sitting in that david weathers among them that who pitched in the big leagues for 20 years uh, and we're sitting there working with with marcus on how to tell a story and and as uh burn told me they were asked me hey tell me a story i said i'm gonna tell you a story about telling a story and and that's I, I walked him through the the life of Marcus Moore as an Arizona Fall Laker. Did Marcus eventually graduate? Like, did he, did we have signs of progress? It never really. Improved. It didn't take. It, it, it was not Mooney on uh, learning oh, the slider, unfortunately. Yeah. That's so terrible. did you just tell a story about someone asking you to tell them a story about telling a story yeah. about? It's a lot of yep. a lot of pictures it's, in a picture. It's like looking a in the mirror and yeah, it's like a Seinfeld yeah. episode. Yeah, right? I like it. <laughs> I like it. That was great. 
Well, we also concluded, by the way, um, now you might feel differently, but any any trail mix that is labeled Omega is like a total no-fly zone. Really? Yeah, I feel I mean, differently. No, I, feel I knew differently. you would. I knew you would. <laughs> yeah. See, we, yeah, we have different scouting scales on certain things like desserts and sandwiches, broccoli rub, and um, if it has Omega, if it's Omega, then there's no chocolate. And if there's no chocolate, then why are they making this? That the whole point is to have a snack that tastes delicious because it has chocolate, but <laughs> you're you're pretending that it's actually nutritious simultaneously. I think we've covered this before. I like I like nuts and grains. They're, they're, that's, a, that's a drop right there. <laughs> yeah. That's a drop. If we had a Jerry Drop bucket, that would be – that's in the Rawlings Jerry Drop bucket right there. Yeah, I'm all about it. I'm all about <laughs> the nuts and the granola. That's a, yeah. Well, you know. You Omega, you Omega all day long. I'll I'll eat salmon from my Omega. Can you get Omega and salmon? That seems like a thing. It does seem like I a think thing Omega to threes. Yeah. They're all over, they're in the air all over the place. Jerry, we've covered a lot of ground here. We have. I, I must say we have. In addition to getting a, a freebie a tryout of the the electric guitar national and yeah, the, the Geno tanks are gone, so we'll wrap it up. Uh, but hey, uh, we will uh, definitely try to get one more of these in before the regular year comes to a close. And uh, man, it's been great being with you. Thank you so much. Thanks, guys. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey.